Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. In my many years as an animator and director, my most defining projects have been my short film, Layers, along with Vanishing Ink and Cirque de Solitude, two books which I wrote, illustrated, and pitched at several studios as feature films. And I have more of these feature film pitches coming soon. Today, we are with the wonderful William Joyce. He is one of the biggest inspirations for my career, and I am so excited to be able to interview him today. Uh, if you don't know William's work, you actually do know William's work. He has been a children's book author for many years. He was instrumental in the early days of Pixar with Toy Story and Bugs Life. He created the series Roly Poly Oli. The book Behind Meet the Robinsons was written by him, and he was key in the development of that film. And he created Moonbot Studios, which was my dream job for many years. And right now, he's just continuing on. He's just continuing to create wherever he can and tell great stories. Is there anything you'd like me to add, Bill? I won the second place in the uh, science fair in the fourth grade. That is an important achievement. <laughs> yes, he also won the Oscar for the fantastic flying books of Mr. Morris Lesmore. That oh, was yeah. pretty exciting. The science fair win was huge. It was huge. What was your project? I electrically trained worms. <laughs> Allegedly. It really didn't work, and it was a thing I saw in some stupid book about, you know, science fair project. Uh -huh. It sounded cool, and it, it and I got to have a pile of worms that we shocked with, with um, a 12-volt battery from time to time. <laughs> That's awesome. So so what are you working on now? Does it have anything to do with worms? It It does not. <laughs> and I've actually tried for years to figure out sneak that into something happened yet. I'm start today, as of today, I start a new short film with my new company called uh, Howdy Bot, and we raise the money, and we have extraordinary partners. We start today. And can you can tell me a bit about the process of getting the right partners, raising the money, that sort of thing? <laughs> you know, what are all your secrets? <laughs> it's oh. My and raising the money, forget about it, it was really just going to my neighborhood in my hometown. And then it became one particular fellow, the Bactus. Yeah. And was incredibly hands-off, very kind, thoughtful, yeah. and wished us well and wanted something not just for us. And because, you know, I've lived, I've, I've lived most of my life. I've traveled, worked on movies this time. I've always got the base here, raised my kids here. And maybe I watched many Frank Capra movies when I was growing up, but, you know, <laughs> has a has significance for me. And so he was like, I want to do something for the town and for you. And, you know, the whole point of Moonbot, a lot of it was to see if we could do world-class animation, the 104th smallest town in the United States. And, you know, where animation had never been done before. And because we knew no one would hire us to do something unless we proved together a great team. So that fell up to our, we dreamt of what would happen. We dared to dream that we might get someplace but it, we, we did better than we expected. And so getting nominated for the Oscar, winning the Oscar, putting together that, the first, like, the app that was based on, on the short film, and that succeeded. We were much heralded in within months of, of opening and with a crew that was 90% uh, recent graduates from Ringling School of Design. Yeah. And so it was, it was like literally, it was like an old Mickey Rooney where we put on a show in the barn, right? And we <laughs> Broadway, and it was a hit. And, yeah. and we didn't really know that much about what we were doing. We were in a prayer almost the entire time, but we were going on our instincts for one of those rare times in one's life and career, those instincts. Those instincts bore out, you know, paid out. We were hoping this way. Yeah. Well, and after listening to that, I don't think you can watch too many Frank Capital movies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's well, too amazing. God, there's a little extra. There's a 
buttons that story bits. When we came back from Los Angeles, uh, there were people at the airport you know, waiting for us, like in old movies. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome home, congratulations. Signs everywhere, all over town. My favorite was on uh, the oldest liquor store in town. Had, <laughs> congratulations, Bill. <laughs> 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 but then to make it even like cooler and more Capra-esque they, uh, they had a ticker tape parade downtown Shreveport for us you know most of the buildings are 90% of the buildings on the parade ground are three stories tall right yeah and so it's kind of hard to do ticker tape for that low and it was the first ticker tape parade in downtown Shreveport since the end of World War II okay oh. <laughs> So they put up, they rented like a hundred of these confetti cannons. I didn't know such a thing existed. Which you can just load up, you know, confetti forever and just keep shooting confetti. You know, we made the route and the whole town came out and they were marching bands. We had our own Mardi Gras float because Louisiana, so of course we had our own Mardi Gras float. But we had this awesome Moondot Mardi Gras float that we all rode in parade. And then when we stopped at this sort of, at this place uh, at the end of the route, they, um, they, the, the mayor gave us the keys to the city and proclaimed it Moonbot Day. And then, and then everyone in town sang for their jolly good fellow. Oh. Wow. <laughs> We're in our Moonbot jumpsuits <laughs> that had been made by Dickies of Fort Worth. The same people who made our yes. And I turned to Brandon and I was like, man, it's like, I feel like. We're at, at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. And, yeah. And, you know, somebody just, just said, you know, here's George Belly, the richest man in town. And a, a bell just rang and we got our, you know. Yeah. I was going to make a joke about that, but you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite movies. Like, and it's Shreveport just sounds like such a special place. It is. And it doesn't realize it. Yeah. And so I like celebrating it, helping it understand how cool it is. <laughs> Well, I, I wish I could have joined you guys there. We talked about this beforehand, but uh, things didn't line quite right for me to join you guys there at Moomba. Oh, actually, I did translate the Lollipop Exit Doom app into Portuguese. <laughs> oh, my God. And because you speak Portuguese? Or... I do speak Portuguese. You do? Yeah. That's amazing. No one <laughs> Why do you speak Portuguese? Are you Portuguese? What? Tell me more. Oh, I just spent about two years down there in uh, in Amazon rainforest and okay. serving the people, getting to know them, and yeah. Awesome! Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's a beautiful language. It is so beautiful. My best friend spoke Portuguese as well, and he went down to South America and did kind of the same thing. Yeah. But yes. So that. So which one did you translate again? The lollipops. Of doom? The lollipop three eggs of doom, as I think what it was called. <laughs> that was one of my. <laughs> Those are our, our favorite things that we did. Really? Colossal failure. <laughs> we, we lost so much money on that, but it was the most delirious thing. It just yeah. wasn't, we didn't know how to like share it in a way that would make money. Yeah. <laughs> Great fun as an experience is a business move. Dreadful. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, I just forgot the name of the app, but there was a pig. You threw away pigs, like yes. Angry Pigs or something like that. There was so much stuff. We, I was like, I want this game to be like like an almost epileptic sugar high. <laughs> That's what it felt like. <laughs> just, put, just put more stuff that anybody can even begin to like take in. I mean, just, yeah. just uh, and so that you're, you're laughing with what, the absurdity of how fast and furious and ridiculous. Yeah. And so there. 
Well, the crazy thing to me was when I, it showed up as an IMDb credit. I don't know if it's because there was a short attached to it or what, but I got an IMDb credit for translating it into Portuguese. I need to put that online, too. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's an important credit. That is, that is almost as important as the worms. Say what? In the science fair. <laughs> it literally, I can't even explain how, it's just, it was one of those moments when, I, like, I tapped into my five-year-old brain or something. I don't know. <laughs> it just started thinking up the goofiest stuff I could and, and how to weave a very serious-sounding mythological backstory for you know, three tiny animals uh, having to save the universe with lollipops of, of eternal joy. <laughs> <laughs> Against eggs of doom. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's kind of like that quote from Picasso, and I, I'm going to butcher it, but he said something to the effect of, it took me a couple years to learn to draw and a lifetime to learn how to draw like a child. That is so much truth in that. Yeah. Felicity is the hardest thing to achieve. Yeah, it is. It is in many ways the core of almost everything that we do. It's hard to realize that with how complicated the process is. And yeah. Movies are simple. And they are. Most and novels and most stories and most art is a simple idea that you can't have. And kids understand it. My favorite thing to do, it still is, what about to just line up some kids in a row and have them tell each say a line of a story. Oh, yeah, that's fun. You know, yeah, okay, there once was a frog that could fly. And just see where each one takes it. And, you know, it's like Axe Pop or something. They have their fearless, their narrative fearlessness and their need to embrace absurdity. Yeah. Uh, is very inspiring. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and uh, I had a thought, and I just lost it. <laughs> well, <Keep going>. we'll <laughs> yeah, it was something something about being childlike. It was really cool. Something you said, but but I lost it. So yeah, and and it's interesting that um, oh yeah, we we did talk a little bit about before the show of how you have you know you have sometimes the Mister Potters in your life, and sometimes you have the George Bailey's in your life. As you're talking about how stories are so simple, I think sometimes if you do your job right and you make it really simple, even then you'll have people trying to push it to be more complex. Yes. <laughs> I mean, animation is one of the most expensive things. Right. And, you know, if you're a painter, you can sit down and, without much expense, sit down and do a drawing on a rock, piece of paper, or some canvas. If you're a writer, you know, word processor word processor oh my god what am i saying it's like joe biden all of a sudden <laughs> like it's it's you just write it down on something yeah and, you know in dance it's more complicated but you can simply dance you can theater it's more complicated but you can sit down and just do theater and chairs and a stage nothing else but animation filmmaking and most particularly animation requires yeah. so much time time it really is money and so <laughs> yeah it really is and so in doing what we do, it is very expensive. And have the money to let you do that are sometimes trusting in your abilities, and sometimes they are worried about yeah. you. And that's, that's a legitimate concern. It's their money. Yeah. And they want to they make sure that it's going to be spent well and that they'll make our money back. Yeah, and, with interest. <laughs> yeah, otherwise yeah. they put it in you know, some guarantee. It, it yeah. certainly put it in some people guarantee lose money. Yeah. And, but so you're, in animation, you're always fighting that, that uneasy mix of commerce and art. And, yes. And so my experiences in film and animation you know, have been all over the map. I was describing it to you earlier, like George Bailey's and Mr. Potter's. And, you know, for every, I've been lucky in, in encountering a lot of kind trust who let me 
do what I do best, which is make up worlds and compelling ideas and stories. And I've met people who wanted to trust that, but by the very nature of the expense, you know, when you're spending 150 or 75 or million dollars movie, you know, those guys are going to have concerns. Yes. And, and sometimes those concerns don't line up what you're trying to, the, the story you're trying to right. get. When that happens, then, then it's it's difficult, and you have to tread lightly or heavily, however you want to tread. But you're gonna have to tread. Yes, you're not gonna be skipping through that field of uh, creativity. You're gonna be treading along, hoping you don't hit a landmine or get shot, <laughs> and that makes it more, more difficult. Now, sometimes you've got when you've got the right people that are concerned about the expense of here, they're on the same creative page, or they believe in what you're trying to do enough to trust. You're going to find your way, and they don't make you know suggestions that diminish it. Mm-hmm. And and so, like on Toy Story, it was there was a lot of freedom, but there was also a lot of tense and eventually profoundly good input. And but there also was this feeling of like, oh my god, we're getting away with murder. Yeah. Once once there was this sort of got past some of the hardest story stuff, then it, it was golden. And and then right after doing that, I, I started working. Doing the series really fully only for the Disney Channel. It was a theater company out of Nelvana, uh, out of Canada called Nelvana, and the head of that that, that studio, man named Cooper Taylor, he just believed in what I wanted to do completely and utterly. He's like, let just let him do what he wants to do. Yeah. And, and so I mean, I'm like, I wanted to do the sweetest show, you know, not like saccharine sweet, just just like gentle and not yeah. not ironic. Cynical, yeah. And I was like, you know, robots. You know, it's like leave it to be with robots. There's some loose guys and in the robot in line. And there are many influences, like Huey's Playhouse, things like that. Just this joyful sense of like Trick or some of the early Disney stuff. And I, I said, I want this the, the music to be like old Little Rascals music. And and so they literally they like put together a band <laughs> of musicians and totally recreated that sound of, of uh, Leroy Shields, I think is his name, who did the music. For the little rascals and all the uh, one one party films. Okay, and, I mean they totally got it, and and then they they we hired a guy to write the theme song, and he kept doing these kind of Broadway kind of sounds, big like showstopper. No, 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 no. It's got to be this simple ditty, you know, like like kind of ditty 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 ditty. And and, then, and so I finally I said, look, let me just see if I can write this. And so I wrote the theme song, and they're like, okay, terrific. And <laughs> you know, and then Disney went, okay, we love it. It tested incredibly well. And, and they, they were just like, so let them do what they do. And we would have meetings once a year with six seasons. We'd have a meeting with, you know, our, our execs at Disney once a year to kind of plan out the next year's, you know, what they would like to see happen within the world we created. And it was all so, I'm not going to say vague, it's just it'd be nice if there's somebody who's, you know, if we could tackle or, or address racial issues or in a subtle way. And, and, or a handicapped robot in a subtle way. And we're like, awesome. You know, and and then, then we would go do it. And, and and then other than that, it was pretty much the shows were just air. And yeah. it, it was so that all those people at that time came together to just trust that we would figure it out. And we would come up with something that people liked and they did. You know, it was a yeah. great we won six Emmys. I mean it it was really joyful. And that kind of freedom is rare and it's intoxicating. <laughs> and once you taste that and that you know Six years is a long time, and I was doing other stuff. And that's what I was doing: robots, robots. And we started doing with that big number. And oh, yeah, I didn't mention that one. I didn't mention robots. <laughs> no. Lots of work. <laughs> and but having that freedom then, and having it go for so long, really kind of ruined me. And so 
everything after that, you know, was a mixed bag. And I'm very proud of everyone on this, but that each one had some concessions yeah. to the people who worry about money. Mm-hmm. And and in my experience, and I'll be honest, I'm not blowing my own boat here, but it's I found that when people just trust in the vision, that it always succeeded more. Yeah, it, or tried to shoehorn it into some thought would succeed. And yeah, well, and you've said that word several times, trust, right? Uh, I think perhaps it isn't even. Um, Floating your own boat, which I'm fine with your boat floating. It's, it's a great boat. But <laughs> I, uh, it, maybe it's the process of trust that is so important. Well, and that's, and that's, it takes a great deal of courage. And so I'm not, I'm, for the most part, I'm not criticizing fellows at the, at the motion picture studios or television studios for their involvement. Their jobs are on the line. Right. Not just that they're making sure that the money is well spent, that, you know, it takes an extraordinary amount of guts for, it is what I tell people now, and it's it came to me one day. I don't know why this long yeah. recently, but it. I was like, you have to tell a story that makes somebody want to spend two hundred million dollars. It's as simple as that. Right. That's a. They have to like it a lot to go. I'm going to spend two hundred million dollars and several years and put my career as an executive on the line for approving this. Yeah. And so that. Those guys, those people, those men and women, they operate under a great deal of stress and in, in having made that decision. Some of them have more clarity about how to make that happen than others, but you, yeah. you have to you have to cut them a lot of slack as they are they have put their their careers and their assets on the line for your story. That's a that's a great perspective. It's something that I hadn't thought. I, as I've been listening to you, I've been thinking that is extremely valuable. I have to completely immerse my brain in that. Because <laughs> it, it is important. And, and the question that arises from that is, how do you come up with a film that people are willing to put that much on the line? You know, it's, it's an alchemy that one will never be able to <laughs> explain. Yeah. And it doesn't happen. You know, I've, I think I've done five features. And it were my idea. Right. And, and so five times I had an idea that was good enough. Five times. That's you know how many ideas I get? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I think we're very similar in that way. We were talking before the show about how um, you could spend all day drawing and, and story is harder, where I like to sit because of my musical theater background and all the shows and things I wrote as a child and I'd make my neighborhood kids do plays too. <laughs> but um, because of that, like drawing is a little harder for me. So I have to start with a story. I have to really get into that first and then, and then move into writing. Yeah. But I think the ideas, the amount of ideas that come are probably very similar. <laughs> you know, it's, and you kind of know in your gut, like, Oh, wait a minute. That's a good one. This one's, this one's good. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, I, when we pitched, Wilbur Robinson was the first movie pitch I ever did. Mm-hmm. And there is, they're making a film not far from Shreveport, uh, Disney was a live action film. Yeah. And I met the producer and he was like, man, some children's books. And I went to film school and, uh, he said, well, let me see your stuff. And so I showed him, uh, Wilbur Robinson. It wasn't even published yet. It was just, um, some yeah. published. They call it FGs, which stands for Old Gathered. And yes, that's the revised Oh, yeah, it even has the bubble on it that says, based on Meet the Robinsons. Yeah. And she goes, this is cool. I think we could sell this. It's a movie. <laughs> I'm like, oh, beautiful words. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, just give me a couple of days. And let me see if I can set up a... And I'm like, and so he said, okay, we have a, we have a, a meeting with the uh, head of development at uh, Touchstone of, of Disney. And... Mm-hmm. You're going to pitch the story to her. And I'm like, well, 
you know, this is a picture book. There's like not a lot of story. <laughs> he goes, make one up on a bar. Two thirty. Yeah. Your time. And so I sat there all night thinking of this thing <laughs> and got on the phone and I'm like, I'm so nervous. And and so, you know, they everybody picks up and it's like this is so and 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 so from you know, Disney. Nice to meet you guys and they're like and and then they're like, go ahead, tell us your story. We, we, we have the images here from your book. It's beautiful. And I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. And so I, I talked, I guess, for 20 minutes. And, and they didn't make a sound. They wanted to laugh. There was just crickets. And, and then I was done. And, and, there, and there was this quiet, really, I don't know, maybe five, ten seconds, but it felt forever quiet. And, and I was like, God, that's the most humiliating thing. And, and, and they go, well, um, um, okay, um, gee, okay, Bill, but thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was very nice talking. There you go. Oh. And they hung out. Oh. And, oh. and my wife goes, how'd it go? I go, that was, it was horrible. It was the worst thing ever. <laughs> it was the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me. Oh, my God, they didn't make a sound. They're like zombies. They're like dead people. Yeah. And, and then the phone rang, and it was the producer. And he goes, okay, they want to do it. <laughs> wow! Wow! And they said, "Do you want to? Do you want to write it?" And I go, "Yeah." <laughs> they go, okay. Now, at that point, did you have the "keep moving forward" idea in there—the Disney quote? No. Or, no. Wow! Because no. that's kind of the core of it, right? What you have to understand is it's going to be at that point. It's going to be live action. Oh, yeah, yeah. makes sense. And for, and for quite a number of years, action, and it even it. So and then everybody kept getting fired. And that's one of the things. I mean, movies take so long sometimes to yeah. make that the heads of the studio, when you start, may not be the heads of the studio for that much longer. And so yeah. I went through five regime changes in the course of Wow. Over, and it's, I made other movies, like, in that, in that period of time, you know, I did really poor. That's really probably only started after that initial call. And Robot, probably. Toy Story, I worked on Bugs Life, and then I initiated and art directed and produced Robots yeah. in a period of time. And began work on Leafman, which became epic, and did a whole other television series called George Shrinks, you know, all in the period of time, and started on Rise of the Guardians. Right. The uh, books or the film? Books, but always with the eye towards the film. Right. And all, to- all while Reader Robinson's became, you know, went, came and went, and came and went, and came and went. I got fired off of it eight times or 11 times. I can't remember. And. <laughs> I wrote, I think, eight drafts of the screenplay. Yeah. And finally, and this is one of those times, oh my gosh, you know, there was a real devil, a real Mr. Potter who was in charge of things for a while. And, ah, that man was, he was just, just, it was everything you try to keep away from in the movies. And and I got really upset with him one day and I I called him, I'm not going to tell you what I called him, but it was, it I had to wait for I had to wait for him to get fired before I got rehired to work on Wilbur again, and uh, and so it changed many many times. And keep moving forward came from the director, and it switched. It, it changed a lot of the focus of the film to you know story of, of adoption, and <laughs> the director had been adopted, and so that's it was, that was the story he wanted to tell. Important I time found now. that it dovetailed very nicely in yeah. the sort of world that the Robinsons. Were uh, presented and in my versions of the story it was always about a kid who didn't quite fit in 
mm. anywhere. And mm-hmm. then by befriending Wilbur Robinson Conway, and yeah. they are also affable and they're so different. And so essentially it was the same story, it just gave it the, the twist of adoption. It was, and so it, I, thought it, I thought that worked really nicely. Yes. Uh, but that's kind of the thing, like, it, in all these... In developing these, these these motion pictures, sometimes it adheres very very closely to your original conception. But there's a million ways to skin a cat. That's one of the things you have to realize about any story is that sometimes you find this perfect route, this perfect narrative route, and you find it instinctually. And I think that Morris Lessmore was 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 a good example. That story changed also many times. There's room for change in almost every story. Sometimes they, it enriches it in ways you never could have anticipated. Yeah. And yeah. when we were working on Frost and Guardians, I had initially uh, seen Jack Frost as as a sort of Rip Van Winkle character. He was an yeah. adult, and yeah. he had he had been buried in an avalanche and had frozen for a hundred years, and finally was got out of the the, the ice. He was you know, frozen and forever frozen, but everybody he knew was had died. His family on and uh, so he's a very lonely character an outsider and and that the, the initial you know discussions on, on the film because i said i don't want the film and jeffrey Pettenberg agreed with this and it's one reason why we got along so well is you know i want the film to be about what happens after the books the books set up their mythology and but the film should be what happens after that and yeah and because that's cool because but you need one character to bring the audience in to identify with. And we talked about the Magnificent Seven, because in a way we're we're had some of the same thing going on. The Guardians were established, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Sandman. Those guys were very Funny. they're already who they were. They've been that way for a while. But yeah. Jack Frost was not. But we had to pick one. Who would be it? And I go, the least is Jack Frost. And he goes, yeah. All right, so that's who you need to focus on. And because that's what the Magnificent Seven a lot of is about is one guy who is not like and and so he is not yet a fighter. He is not yet a magnificent North one of the seven and makes the seven. And so it was hard to make Jack Frost's story fit in with what I had come up with. So mm-hmm. this, this is one of those times when the executives make a generous choice. And instead of telling me what to do, they said, we want you to meet with all the heads of story you have, all our best story people for a day. Let's just listen to them and talk to them. And I was like, God, it just sounds like making a movie about comedian. I'm kind of nervous about that. And I like, don't be. It's not like that. Just, these guys have been doing story forever. You've been doing story for a very long time. It's good to bounce things off of people. Good. And these people are good. And they wish you well. They love this product. Yeah. And, 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 one, and, it, and, and it was magnificent. One of the guys, one of the story guys, said, out of nowhere, said, what if Jack Frost is, is a kid? And that was that was contrary to everything I've been thinking about this project for 10 years. I mean, it was it completely dismantled what I had been seeing in my head for all that time. But that idea, like, I mean, it was like, for me, it was like the biggest diamond in the rough. I mean, it just it was, it was a diamond in the middle of coal. I mean, it was just and, and my mind went bananas in that instant. And and I'm like, yeah, like like Peter Pan. I mean, being stuck as a kid forever sounds awesome, but it really was complicated. And Peter Pan, I mean, a lot of times they, they downplay that, but Peter had it wasn't a perfect existence at all. It was somewhat tragic. Peter's friends all grew up, you know. He had to say goodbye to every friend he had. Yeah. And he was able to go back and see Wendy, but Wendy as an adult and then Wendy's kids. And then it just it was that was what kept him going. That there was there was a loneliness there and it's in the book, much more than any of the film that Peter experienced. And I thought, God, that's that's beautiful. We can 
bring in that, that powerful knowledge in a kid that never grows up, but how that is not maybe the greatest thing. That it's lonely. Yeah. And he needs a family, and the family yeah. is the guardians. Right. So it's about them becoming a family. And then so many things fell into place after that. But it took yeah. that that skill of, of Jeffrey and Bill Damaski and the guys at the DreamWorks and then, and then all those story guys and the trust of sitting around and coming up with something that would be cool. And and then and then the most valuable thing I think you could even have in this business is be willing to to change that your stuff isn't always gold the first day out. Yeah. And some stuff that you have that you love so much may be getting in your way and yeah. be open to the possibility yeah. of a magnificent idea that may change so much but it's so much. Yeah, completely agree with that. That that's the golden piece of advice as well. I told this story on the last episode because we had an animator. He now has his own studio, but he was an animator on Rise of the Guardians. And I think it would be valuable for you to hear. I'd broken into the animation industry, but then following that, I had this long, it was actually 18 months of unemployment. And I think it was near the end of that, that I was just feeling completely defeated. I thought maybe animation isn't for me. And I went and saw Rise of the Guardians and it completely restoked the flame. The fire was just blazing after I came out of that. Yeah. I'm very proud of it. You should be. I, I was very happy to see that it did even better when it was on DVD. You know, it like we got it should have succeeded so much more than it did, and, uh, and I'm not going to sit down and tell you the horror of that, but it still stands. It's test of time. Yeah, and, it does. And Jeffrey told me at the beginning of this, we when we were making the deal, I was like, I was hesitant, and even Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't have to try to make me happy. <laughs> yeah, like, but he he loved that idea, and like Jeffrey, I just want I don't want the Guardians to jokes. It's too important to me. And a lot of the reason I did this story is to give the mythology of these characters real power because they're kind of yeah. you know, there wasn't a lot of definition for some of them, and I felt like some of them were beginning to sort of fade away, especially Jack Frost. Kids just weren't talking about Jack Frost, mm-hmm. and I, mean, I noticed through my own kids, and I said so. It, it, I don't want them to become like these joke machines, okay? I mean, I love the movies that you guys do, but this one's going to be a little, should be a little different, and, and I want kids to believe in these guys. Mm-hmm. They have to be believing. They cannot be totally common, diminished characters. It's about building them up. Yeah. And because, Bill, I promise you won't <sighs> let you help us come up with it. Right. Uh, he was true to his word, and sometimes against his, against his instincts or against what he wanted to fall back on, mm-hmm. you know, he, he would on occasion say, look, we need some more jokes, and then we would say, no, you know, we've got to keep, like, they have, the jokes just have to be good. Is it more? You know, yeah. Good. And break the character the spell. And he, yeah. would, he would say, okay. And that was tough. You know, he was looking out for his money. Yeah. And, and he knew what would sell. Yeah. And, it, like, but sometimes, you know, like, you know, we kept talking about Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars is a funny movie, but it's not a comedy. No. And no. You believe in what's happening. Believe the stakes, and it was a brave thing for them. They went brave. Wow. So we all we're almost over here. Uh, the last question I usually ask is the get wiser moment. <laughs> and <laughs> a little cheesy. So it uh, it used to be phrased as what responsibility does a filmmaker have to the world culture? But I was always getting some answer that said tell the truth. It's got to be truthful. It's got to be truth in there. So my question is now: if my goal is to get the highest purity and concentration of truth into the story, what approach would you suggest? All right, you're going to have to say that again. <laughs> yeah. It's evolved too far. Um, <laughs> yeah, everybody asked me to repeat it twice. It's simple. 
if my goal is to get the highest concentration of truth into a story, what approach would you suggest? It's just your instincts. Yeah. If you're a smart person, not a fool, and you know, and, but making films is a very foolish endeavor. There's no <laughs> ways to make a living, and yeah. a lot of ways to stay more sane. And uh, I mean, you know when something sucks, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And you know when you come up with something that sucks. Yeah. And, but sometimes it's really hard to admit, and sometimes you, you you go, it's just good enough. Yeah, this, this piece is soft. I mean, you, you fool yourself. You do. And and so and it's hard sometimes to hear someone go, yeah, I like it, but this part's. I mean, they're not saying it sucks, but they you get all this like verbiage. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, yeah, this sucks. Yeah, yeah. And, There's some hints there for sure. <laughs> Defensive. You're like, well, it's because, you know, I had to, I mean, the character needs, and you have to face the fact that it sucks. It's not yeah. going to And so you have to, yeah, if you're ta- asking about truth, I guess that is knowing when you truly suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if there's any theme to this episode as I've listened to you, it would be the word trust, I believe. And, and you talked about trusting your instincts and also trusting what you hear from people, trusting their feedback, trust, have people around who you trust who can help you know how to get over those pieces that are too soft or that suck and, and how to, uh, how to find the last piece of, 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 if not advice, is what I do. Okay. Whenever I'm working on a story, the most helpful thing I've found is to tell it to everybody. I can, you know, everybody that, that, that I like, or some people I don't even like, I mean, just, yeah, just telling it. Yep. And sometimes you get a, you get an instinctual readiness from seeing their faces energy feel from it, but you also can feel in your heart when you're telling it this part sounds weird. Yeah. So don't sequester yourself and hold it all so dear. Yeah. Go out and from day one tell people the story. Because you'll start building. They'll start instinctually knowing when something sucks and then you'll add shit out of nowhere. You know, that your instincts will just pluck out of your brain and, and you'll oh that's pretty good and, and always record yourself when you're doing this, because you'll forget, mm-hmm. sometimes you'll forget the stuff you added, the way you told it different, it made it better. But yeah. just don't be so precious about it. Go around and tell people. Say it out loud. Yeah. Well, that is brilliant advice. Thank <laughs> you. It's just simple shit. <laughs> well, and it, uh, we actually had Kevin Lee Nelson said something very, very similar, and uh, it it so far has proved to be very rewarding. I liked the added idea that added on top of his of recording you yourself because. You might forget what made it better. And that, that is just, yes, <laughs> we'll be doing that. <laughs> There's so many times when Brandon and I or Joe Bloom and I, I mean, it's, it's like, record it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, ha- we have to end now. And it's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, interview. And if anybody wants to follow William Joyce, you can find him at as Hey Bill Joyce on both Instagram and Twitter. And uh, it's, yeah, you'll see wonderful, inspiring things going on there. And uh, tune in next time for our next guest, who is Denver Jackson. He's animated two feature films on his own. So it'll be a very interesting and insightful interview as well. So until next time, enjoy. You have been watching the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Audio version edited by Kiera Horowitz. Copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2020. <laughs>